Welcome back to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is part two of Stephen Crane's The Open Boat. And now, our story. The cook's head was on a thwart, and he looked without interest at the water under his nose. He was deep in other scenes. Finally he spoke. Billy? He murmured, dreamfully. What kind of pie do you like best? Part 5 Pie? said the oiler and the correspondent, agitatedly. Don't talk about those things, blast you. Well, said the cook, I was just thinking about ham sandwiches and... A night on the sea in an open boat is a long night. As darkness settled finally, the shine of the light, lifting from the sea in the south, changed to full gold. On the northern horizon a new light appeared a small bluish gleam on the edge of the waters. These two lights were the furniture of the world. Otherwise, there was nothing but waves. Two men huddled in the stern, and distances were so magnificent in the dinghy that the rower was enabled to keep his feet partly warmed by thrusting them under his companions. Their legs indeed extended far under the rowing seat until they touched the feet of the captain forward. Sometimes, despite the efforts of the tired oarsmen, a wave came piling into the boat, an icy wave of the night, and the chilling waters soaked them anew. They would twist their bodies for a moment and groan, and sleep the dead sleep once more, while the water in the boat gurgled about them as the craft rocked. The plan of the oiler and the correspondent was for one to row until he lost the ability, and then arouse the other from his seawater couch in the bottom of the boat. The oiler plied the oars until his head drooped forward, and the overpowering sleep blinded him. And he rowed yet afterward. Then he touched a man in the bottom of the boat and called his name. "'Will you spell me for a little while?' he said, meekly. "'Sure, Billy,' said the correspondent, and dragging himself to a sitting position. They exchanged places carefully, and the oiler... Cuddling down in the seawater at the cook's side seemed to go to sleep instantly. The particular violence of the sea had ceased. The waves came without snarling. The obligation of the man at the oars was to keep the boat headed so that the tilt of the rollers would not capsize her, and to preserve her from filling when the crests rushed past. The black waves were silent and hard to be seen in the darkness. Often one was almost upon the boat before the oarsman was aware. In a low voice, the correspondent addressed the captain. He was not sure that the captain was awake, although this iron man seemed to always be awake. Captain, shall I keep her making for that light north, sir? The same steady voice answered him. Yes, keep it about two points off the port bow. The cook had tied a life belt around himself in order to get even the warmth which this clumsy cork contrivance could donate, and he seemed almost stove-like when a rower, whose teeth invariably chattered wildly as soon as he seized his labor, dropped down to sleep. The correspondent, as he rowed, looked down at the two men sleeping underfoot. The cook's arm was around the oiler's shoulders, and with their fragmentary clothing and haggard faces, they were babes of the sea a grotesque rendering of the old babes in the wood. Later he must have grown stupid at his work, 
for suddenly there was a growling of water, and a crest came with a roar and a swash into the boat, and it was a wonder that it did not set the cook afloat in his life belt. The cook continued to sleep, but the oiler sat up, blinking his eyes and shaking with the new cold. "'I'm sorry, Billy,' said the correspondent, contritely. "'That's all right, old boy,' said the oiler, and lay down again and was asleep. Presently it seemed that even the captain dozed, and the correspondent thought that he was the one man afloat on all the oceans. The wind had a voice as it came over the waves, and it was sadder than the end. There was a long, loud swishing astern of the boat, and a gleaming trail of phosphorescence, like blue flame, was furrowed on the black waters. It might have been made by a monstrous knife. Then there came a stillness, while the correspondent breathed with the open mouth and looked at the sea. Suddenly there was another swish and another long flash of bluish light, and this time it was alongside the boat and might almost have been reached with an oar. The correspondent saw an enormous fin speed like a shadow through the water, hurling the crystalline spray and leaving the long glowing trail. The correspondent looked over his shoulder at the captain. His face was hidden, and he seemed to be asleep. He looked at the babes of the sea. They certainly were asleep. So, being bereft of sympathy, he leaned a little way to one side and swore softly into the sea. But the thing did not then leave the vicinity of the boat. Ahead or astern, on one side or the other, at intervals long or short, fled the long sparkling streak, and there was to be heard the whirroo of the dark fin. The speed and power of the thing was greatly to be admired. It cut the water like a gigantic and keen projectile. The presence of this biting thing did not affect the man with the same horror that it would had he been a picnicker. He simply looked at the sea dully and swore in an undertone. Nevertheless, it is true that he did not wish to be alone. He wished one of his companions to awaken by chance and keep him company with it. But the captain hung motionless over the water jar, and the oiler and the cook in the bottom of the boat were plunged in slumber. We'll return to part six right after this message from our sponsors. And now, part six of The Open Boat. If I'm going to be drowned, I'm going to be drowned. If I'm going to be drowned, why in the name of the seven mad gods who rule the sea was I allowed to come thus far and contemplate sand and trees? During this dismal night, it may be remarked that a man would conclude that it was really the intention of the seven mad gods to drown him, despite the abominable injustice of it. For it was certainly an abominable injustice to drown a man who had worked so hard. So hard. The man felt it would be a crime most unnatural. Other people had drowned at sea since galleys swarmed with painted sails. But still. When it occurs to a man that nature does not regard him as important, and that she feels she would not maim the universe by disposing of him. He at first wishes to throw bricks at the temple, and he hates deeply the fact that there are no brick and no temples nearby. Any visible expression of nature would surely be pelleted with his jeers. Then, if there be no tangible thing to hoot, he feels, perhaps, the desire to confront a personification and indulge in pleas, bowed to one knee, and with hands supplicate, saying, Yes, but I love myself. 
A high, cold star on a winter's night is the word he feels that nature says to him. Thereafter, he knows the pathos of his situation. The men in the dinghy had not discussed these matters, but each had, no doubt, reflected upon them in silence and according to his own mind. There was seldom any expression upon their faces save the general one of complete weariness. Speech was devoted to the business of the boat. To chime the notes of his emotion, a verse mysteriously entered the correspondent's head. He had even forgotten that he had forgotten this verse, but it suddenly was in his mind. It went like this. A soldier of the legion lay dying in Algiers. There was a lack of a woman's nursing. There was a dearth of woman's tears. But a comrade stood beside him, and he took that comrade's hand, and he said, I shall never see my own, my native land. In his childhood, the correspondent had been made acquainted with the fact that a soldier of the legion lay dying in Algiers, but he had never regarded the fact as important. Myriads of his schoolfellows had informed him of the soldier's plight, but the dinning hand had naturally ended by making him perfectly indifferent. He had never considered it his affair that a soldier of the legion lay dying in Algiers, nor had it appeared to him as a matter for sorrow. It was less to him than the breaking of a pencil's point. Now, however, it quaintly came to him as a human, living thing. It was no longer merely a picture of a few throws in the breast of a poet, meanwhile drinking tea and warming his feet at the grate. It was an actuality, stern, mournful, and fine. The correspondent plainly saw the soldier. He lay on the sand with his feet out straight and still, while his pale left hand was upon his chest in an attempt to thwart the going away of his life, the blood came between his fingers. In the far Algerian distance, a city of low square forms was set against a sky that was faint with the last sunset hues. The correspondent, plying the oars and dreaming of the slow and slower movements of the lips of the soldier, was moved by a profound and perfectly impersonal comprehension. He was sorry for the soldier of the legion who lay dying in Algiers. The thing which had followed the boat and waited had evidently grown bored at the delay. There was no longer to be heard the slash of the cut water, and there was no longer the flame of the long trail. The light in the north still glimmered, but it was apparently no nearer to the boat. Sometimes the boom of the surf rang in the correspondent's ears, and he turned the craft seaward then and rowed harder. Southward, Someone had evidently built a watchfire on the beach. It was too low and too far to be seen, but it made a shimmering, roseate reflection upon the bluff in back of it, and this could be discerned from the boat. The wind came stronger, and sometimes a wave suddenly raged out like a mountain cat, and there was to be seen the sheen and sparkle of a broken crest. The captain, in the bow, moved on his water jar and sat erect. Pretty long night he observed to the correspondent. He looked at the shore. Those life-saving people take their time. Did you see that shark playing around? Yes, I saw him. He was a big fellow, all right. I wish I'd known you were awake. Later, the correspondent spoke into the bottom of the boat. Billy? There was a slow and gradual disentanglement. Billy? Will you spell me? 
Sure, said the oiler. As soon as the correspondent touched the cold, comfortable seawater in the bottom of the boat and had huddled close to the cook's life belt, he was deep in sleep, despite the fact that his teeth played all the popular airs. This sleep was so good to him that it was but a moment before he heard a voice call his name in a tone that demonstrated the last stages of exhaustion. Will you spell me? Sure, Billy. The light in the north had mysteriously vanished, but the correspondent took his course from the wide-awake captain. Later in the night, they took the boat farther out to sea, and the captain directed the cook to take one oar at the stern and keep the boat facing the seas. He was to call out if he should hear the thunder of the surf. This plan enabled the oiler and the correspondent to get respite together. We'll give these boys a chance to get into shape again, said the captain. They curled down, and after a few preliminary chatterings and trembles, slept once more the dead sleep. Neither knew they had bequeathed to the cook the company of another shark, or perhaps the same shark. As the boat caroused on the waves, spray occasionally bumped over the side and gave them a fresh soaking, but this had no power to break their repose. The ominous slash of the wind and the water affected them as it would have affected mummies. Boys, said the cook, with the notes of every reluctance in his voice. She's drifted in pretty close. I guess one of you had better take her to sea again. The correspondent, aroused, heard the crash of the toppled crest. As he was rowing, the captain gave him some whiskey and water, and this steadied the chills out of him. If I ever get ashore and anybody shows me even a photograph of an oar. At last there was a short conversation. Billy? Billy? Will you spell me? Sure, said the oiler. Part 7 When the correspondent again opened his eyes, the sea and the sky were each of the gray hue of the dawning. Later, Carmen in gold was painted upon the waters. The morning appeared finally in its splendor with a sky of pure blue and the sunlight flamed on the tips of the waves. On the distant dunes were set many little black cottages and a tall white windmill reared above them. No man, nor dog, nor bicycle appeared on the beach. The cottages might have formed a deserted village. The voyagers scanned the shore. A conference was held in the boat. Well, said the captain, if no help is coming, we might better try a run through the surf right away. If we stay out here much longer, we'll be too weak to do anything for ourselves at all. The others silently acquiesced in this reasoning. The boat was headed for the beach. The correspondent wondered if none ever ascended the tall wind tower, and if then they never looked seaward. This tower was a giant, standing with its back to the plight of the ants. It represented in a degree, to the correspondent, the serenity of nature amid the struggles of the individual. Nature in the wind, and nature in the vision of men. She did not seem cruel to him then, nor beneficent, nor treacherous, nor wise. But she was indifferent, flatly indifferent. It is perhaps plausible that a man in this situation, impressed with the unconcern of the universe, should see the innumerable flaws of his life and have them taste wickedly in his mind and wish for another chance. 
A distinction between right and wrong seems absurdly clear to him. Then, in this new ignorance of the grave edge, and he understands that if he were given another opportunity, he would mend his conduct and his words, and be better and brighter during an introduction or a tea. Now, boys, said the captain, she is going to swamp, sure. All we can do is to work her in as far as possible, and then when she swamps, pile out and scramble for the beach. Keep cool now, and don't jump until she swamps, sure. The oiler took the oars. Over his shoulders he scanned the surf. Captain, he said, I think I'd better bring her about and keep her head on to the seas and back her in. All right, Billy, said the captain. Back her in. The oiler swung the boat then, and seated in the stern, the cook and the correspondent were obliged to look over their shoulders to contemplate the lonely and indifferent shore. The monstrous inshore rollers heaved the boat high until the men were again enabled to see the white sheets of water scudding up the slanted beach. We won't get in very close, said the captain. Each time a man could wrest his attention from the rollers, he turned his glance toward the shore, and in the expression of the eyes during this contemplation there was a singular quality. The correspondent, observing the others, knew that they were not afraid, but the full meaning of their glances was shrouded. As for himself, he was too tired to grapple fundamentally with the fact. He tried to coerce his mind into thinking of it, but the mind was dominated at this time by the muscles, and the muscles said, they just did not care. It merely occurred to him that if he should drown, it would be a shame. There were no hurried words, no pallor, no plain agitation. The men simply looked at the shore. Now, remember to get well clear of the boat when you jump, said the captain. Seaward, the crest of a roller suddenly fell with a thunderous crash, and the long white comber came roaring down upon the boat. Steady now, said the captain. The men were silent. They turned their eyes from the shore to the comber and waited. The boat slid up the incline, leaped at the furious top of the wave, bounced over it, and swung down the long back of the wave. Some water had been shipped, and the cook bailed it out. But the next crest crashed also. The tumbling, boiling flood of white water caught the boat and whirled it almost perpendicular. Water swarmed in from all sides. The correspondent had his hands on the gunwale at this time, and when the water entered at that place, he swiftly withdrew his fingers, as if he objected to wetting them. The little boat, drunken with this weight of water, reeled and snuggled deeper into the sea. "'Bail her out, cook! Bail her out!' said the captain. "'All right, captain,' said the cook. "'Now, boys, the next one will do for us, sure,' said the oiler. "'Mind to jump clear of the boat!' The third wave moved forward, huge, furious, implacable. It fairly swallowed the dinghy, and almost simultaneously the men tumbled into the sea. A piece of lifebelt had lain in the bottom of the boat, and as the correspondent went overboard, he held this to his chest with his left hand. The January water was icy, and he reflected immediately that it was colder than he had expected to find it on the coast of Florida. This appeared to his dazed mind as a fact important enough to be noted at the time. 
The coldness of the water was sad. It was tragic. This fact was somehow so mixed and confused with his opinion of his own situation that it seemed almost a proper reason for tears. The water was cold. When he came to the surface, he was conscious of little but the noisy water. Afterward, he saw his companions in the sea. The oiler was ahead in the race. He was swimming strongly and rapidly. Off to the correspondent's left, the cook's great white and corked back bulged out of the water, and in the rear the captain was hanging on with his one good hand to the keel of the overturned dinghy. There is a certain immovable quality to the shore, and the correspondent wondered at it amidst the confusion of the sea. It seemed also very attractive, but the correspondent knew that it was a long journey, and he paddled leisurely. The piece of life preserver lay under him, and sometimes he whirled down the incline of a wave as if he were on a hand sled. But finally he arrived at a place in the sea where travel was beset with difficulty. He did not pause swimming to inquire what manner of current had caught him, but there his progress ceased. The shore was set before him like a bit of scenery on a stage, and he looked at it and understood with his eyes each detail of it. As the cook passed much farther to the left, the captain was calling to him, Turn over on your back, cook! Turn over on your back and use the oar! All right, sir! The cook turned on his back and, paddling with an oar, went ahead as if he were a canoe. Presently the boat also passed to the left of the correspondent, with the captain clinging with one hand to the keel. He would have appeared like a man raising himself to look over a board fence if it were not for the extraordinary gymnastics of the boat. The correspondent marveled that the captain could even hold on to it. They passed on, nearer to shore, the oiler, the cook, the captain, and following them went the water jar, bouncing gaily over the seas. The correspondent remained in the grip of this strange new enemy, a current. The shore, with its white slope of sand and its green bluff, topped with little silent cottages, was spread like a picture before him. It was very near to him then, but he was impressed as one who in gallery books looks at a scene from Brittany or Holland. He thought, Am I going to drown? Can it be possible? Can it be possible? Perhaps an individual must consider his own death to be the final phenomenon of nature. But later, a wave perhaps whirled him out of this small, deadly current, for he found suddenly that he could again make progress toward the shore. Later still, he was aware that the captain, clinging with one hand to the keel of the dinghy, had his face turned away from the shore and toward him, and was calling his name. Come to the boat! Come to the boat! In his struggle to reach the captain and the boat, he reflected that when one gets properly wearied, drowning must really be a comfortable arrangement, a cessation of hostilities accompanied by a large degree of relief. And he was glad of it, for the main thing in his mind for some months had been horror of this temporary agony. He did not wish to be hurt, had been horror of the temporary agony. Presently he saw a man running along the shore. He was undressing with most remarkable speed. Coat, trousers, shirt, everything flew magically off him. Come to the boat, called the captain. All right, captain. As the correspondent paddled, he saw the captain let himself down to bottom and leave the boat. 
Then the correspondent performed his one little marvel of the voyage. A large wave caught him and flung him with ease and supreme speed completely over the boat and far beyond it. It struck him even then as an event in gymnastics and a true miracle of the sea. An overturned boat in the surf is not a plaything to a swimming man. The correspondent arrived in water that reached only to his waist, but his condition, his weakness, did not enable him to stand for more than a moment. Each wave knocked him into a heap, and the undertow pulled at him. Then he saw the man who had been running and undressing, and undressing and running, come bounding into the water. He dragged ashore the cook, and then waded towards the captain. But the captain waved him away, and sent him to the correspondent. He was naked, naked as a tree in winter, but a halo was about his head, and he shone like a saint. He gave a strong pull, and a long drag, and a bully heave at the correspondent's hand. The correspondent, schooled in minor formulae, said, Thanks, old man. But suddenly the man cried, What's that? He pointed a swift finger. The correspondent said, Go. In the shallows, face downward, lay the oiler. His forehead touched sand that was periodically, between each wave, clear of the sea. The correspondent did not know all that transpired afterward. When he achieved safe ground, he fell, striking the sand with each particular part of his body. It was as if he had dropped from a roof, but the thud was grateful to him. It seems that instantly the beach was populated with men with blankets, clothes, and flasks, and women with coffee pots, and all the remedies sacred to their minds. The welcome of the land to the men from the sea was warm and generous, but a still and dripping shape was carried slowly up the beach, and the land's welcome for it could only be the different and sinister hospitality of the grave. When it came night, the white waves paced to and fro in the moonlight, and the wind brought the sound of the great sea's voice to the men on shore, and they felt that they could then be interpreters. Thanks for joining us for The Open Boat by Stephen Crane at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We've had some reviews lately and we'd like to share them with you. Our first review, five stars, most enjoyable. Thanks for making available these classic quality stories in an enjoyable and engaging way to help pass the time of my workouts. That one from Cargo, 1414, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, deepest thanks. John Hagedorn is prolific and passionate. I've been eating these stories up like grapes. Thank you so much for these stories. They are a glimmer in a time so dark. Down from Rocky Pup 33, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, respect, thanks from Iraq for this great show. And this one, perfect companion for long walks. For 11 weeks of social distancing, these stories have been a perfect companion for my long hikes. Thank you. Down from Love to Hike, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Lockdown London, five stars. Here in London, UK, where we've been in coronavirus lockdown for many weeks, your podcasts have been a wonderful discovery and really lightened my day. I would love to become a patron, but bank charges make small monthly dollar payments impractical for my sterling account. If you created an annual payment option, I'd love to contribute to your excellent work. That one from North London fan, Apple Podcast. And yes, just to let you know, Patreon does accept a one-time payment. doesn't have to be monthly. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. And thank you for that review. And this one, five stars, soothing Sunday treat. 
I found your podcast on a wintry, blustery, rainy Sunday. Sitting on the couch with my dog, knitting, I delighted in listening to so many stories in a row. The host has a very soothing, pleasant voice that almost makes the story come alive. Thank you. That one from Just Reviewing, Apple Podcast, Canada. Thank you all so very, very much for sending us these reviews. We appreciate it. Tune in and please do subscribe to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. I think you'll enjoy the choice of our stories very, very much. A lot of them are women writers, but not all. You'll find a pretty good mix at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Give it a try. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe. And we'll see you then.